in and through us, we pray, for our good and your glory in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles if you've got them because we are going to be um, diving into the fifth and final uh, message in a series of five sermons on the topic of marriage. Our main text has been Ephesians chapter 5 in the New Testament, verses 21 to 33. And um, we've been doing this for the past five Sundays because this has been a hard year on all of us. That's like a well, duh. I don't need to tell anybody that. It's been hard on all of our relationships. It's been hard on society. It's been hard on businesses. It's been hard on families and friendships and on marriages. And we felt in particular we really need to look to God's word as a church for some guidance to support marriages. And so we've been landing in this text, Ephesians 5, 21 to 33, probably the Bible's uh, lengthiest passage of scripture on the topic of marriage. Not the only thing it says about marriage, but probably the, the most lengthy. And each week, um, rather than working through it start to finish, we've realized that there's a multifaceted message in this text. And so each week we've been jumping into a different angle, so to speak, of what it teaches us about marriage, a different facet and then springboarding into other passages of the Bible as well to, to flesh out the picture and illuminate it. And so we're going to do this last uh, Saturday, or Sunday, sorry, uh, what we've been doing for the, the previous ones. That is, I'm going to spend some of the time kind of presenting a high-level view of what the Bible says. Uh, and then in our last few minutes together, I'm going to invite some friends up to just have a conversation about how that engages with us personally. And this morning, my wife Amy and as well as Dave and Margaret are going to come up and have a conversation with me uh, a little bit later in the service. Uh, none of us coming up here feel like we're here because we're like a panel of experts. We're just people who are willing to talk honestly about the ups and downs of marriage in the hope that that sparks conversation for all of us because we've all experienced the same things, even if in somewhat different ways. And so today, what we want to do for the final week is look at the message of marriage. Look at the message of marriage and how it relates to this idea of transforming us as people. What we're going to see today is that marriage reflects the gospel in changing us through love and truth and grace. Marriage is designed by God to reflect the gospel in changing us through love, truth, and grace grace. Now, I actually want to do two things this morning to sort of wrap up not only this message, but this whole series. The first is that I've said, I've said something every Sunday, and that is that this is a series on marriage, but it's a series for everyone in the church, whether you're actually married or not. And in a moment of true candor, if you will give me that kind of grace to just be totally candid and honest, I'm not sure how many of you actually believe that when I say it. <laughs> What do you mean? It's a series about marriage. So if I'm not married, it's pretty easy to assume that I'm sort of off on the side or maybe even totally left out. Um, and so what I want to do is spend the first part of this final message maybe unpacking a bit of what I think the Bible is saying about the universal um, importance of marriage. And then we'll spend uh, the rest of the time reflecting on the gospel realities of truth, love, and grace and how they become the tools of transformation for us. So I want to begin with just spending a couple minutes on what I think the Bible says about the universal importance of marriage. Universal, like it applies to everybody, whether you're married or not, whether you're happily married or unhappily married or happily unmarried or unhappily unmarried. And we've got people in our church in all of those categories and maybe some others as well. And yet Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 says, and we've alluded to this, that among God's people, marriage is to be held in honor by all. 
Now, even back in the first century, when the Bible first said that to its original audience, it was a church full of people, probably actually multiple churches full of people, just like us, many of whom were married and many of whom were not. And yet it's saying that, the, that, that marriage is to be held in honor by all of God's people. So why does marriage matter to the married and the unmarried alike? Why would the Bible say that? And the answer that I think Scripture is telling us and I want to show this as briefly as I can in just a couple of minutes, is simply because of this. Because God designed marriage to display life-changing truths about himself and about us as human beings. That's what it does. Marriage has a message. And that message applies to everybody. That message applies to everybody, married and unmarried alike. In fact, the message has nothing to do with marriage. It has to do with God's relationship with human beings. So marriage has a message. And so if, if you've been listening to this sermon series so far thinking, well, I'm married, this is great, it works for me in my marriage, and that's the only application you've seen, then I think the Bible has more for you to see than that. I'm not quite sure we've caught it all yet. And certainly if you've been listening to this series thinking, well, I'm single or I'm unmarried and so I'm feeling kind of left out of this, again, I think the Bible has a bigger picture than that. Marriage has a message that applies to all of us. Let me do my best in just a minute or two to highlight what I think that message is. And we can do it along the lines of three points. First of all, the message is that mankind was created in God's image. If we could get that slide back, I'm not sure what just happened, but that would be helpful to help us track through this. It begins by saying that mankind was created in God's image. And therefore, we are created to display him. Let's see what we've got going on here. Oh, we're at the end. We're going to back way up. This is going to be cool. You're going to get all the slides in reverse. How's that? <laughs> da, 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 da. Boom, perfect, awesome, thank you. If I didn't have a tech crew, we would be dead in the water. The men and women that run our tech stuff, can we give them a hand? I love you guys. You guys are awesome. Um, I don't even want to know what happened because usually when I ask that question, it turns out that I did something wrong. So we're just going to move on. Okay, um, what is the message of marriage? It's basically this. First of all, it starts on page one of the Bible. Do you realize God starts talking about marriage literally at the beginning of Scripture, chapter two? But it even prefaces it in chapter one, page one of the Bible, where we see that mankind was created in God's image as male and female. Two important things to recognize there. First, humanity was created in God's image to image him. <laughs> To, to reflect him, that means, right? To display some things about God to one another and to the rest of the universe. And the Bible says that human beings are uniquely made in God's image. And then it says we were created in his image as male and female. Interesting, why is that detail interjected there? There is something important God wants us to understand about our two-gendered human nature, there are male and female animals and analogies to male and female in the plant kingdom, but there's much more going on with human maleness and femaleness, the Bible says, than merely reproduction and biology. There's something inherent in our nature that together as men and women, we are humankind created in God's image. So we're supposed to display something. How does that work? What are we supposed to display? The Bible moves into chapter two. And what we see is that marriage is the particular relationship that God assembles with those purpose-built tools. Okay, or if you'll let me switch up the analogy a little bit. Marriage is the painting that he creates with the palette of male and female humanity that he himself designed. 
at the end of Genesis chapter 2, literally second chapter of the Bible, it says that here's Adam, God created the man, and it's not good that the man is alone, so then he creates the woman, somebody else who is of his kind, unlike everything else in creation at that point, who corresponds to him and is complementarily designed to fit with him, and God says that is very good. And then the Bible says, Genesis 2.24, for this reason, pauses the narrative and it interjects an interpretive statement. Because God made man in his image as male and female. For that reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's marriage. What's the Bible saying? Marriage is part of displaying and imaging God to the world. There is a message in marriage. What is that message? What is the painting all about? The third and final point, that brings us to our text here in the New Testament. That message is about him, and it is about us. Our passage in Ephesians chapter 5, if you've got your Bibles turned there. Verse 32, uh, sorry, verse 31 quotes the Old Testament. Here the New Testament, the book of Ephesians, quotes Genesis 2.24, quotes the Old Testament, and then elaborates on us, elaborates on it for us. It, it's the, the New Testament telling us what the Old Testament means. The Bible is interpreting the Bible. God is telling us what he meant Back there, Ephesians 5.31, quote, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. End quote. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It refers to Christ, God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, and the church, his gathered people, married and unmarried alike. Marriage is about Christ and the church. What is the Bible saying? Marriage has a message. And that message is about him and us. All of us. Male, female, married, unmarried alike. God's desire to be in relationship with his human creation, with humanity. So the point is that marriage is something much bigger than any given matrimonial union between two people. Just using myself as an example, I am married, and if I only care about what Scripture says about marriage because it helps me in my relationship with my wife Amy, then I haven't quite caught God's heart for marriage yet. My marriage to my wife is very important to God and to us, but marriage is much bigger than that. And it will stay bigger and just as important than that if one of us dies and the other one is left alone and we're no longer married. This is something that matters to all of us, regardless not only of our current marital status, but even our interest. (laughs) Maybe we're married and we wish we weren't. Maybe we're unmarried and we wish we were. Maybe we're unmarried and we have no intention of getting married and no interest in it. This is still the most relevant topic in the world for every follower of Jesus. Why? Because marriage has a message. And when God sends you mail, you open it. Right? You know, you get the mail comes in, Junk mail, junk mail, throw those away, don't even open them, total trash. Oh, bills, <sighs> all right, I can't throw those away. I got to look at those, but maybe I put them aside for some other time because I don't want to deal with them now. And then you get that letter from like a boyfriend or a girlfriend or your spouse if they're traveling or, and you're married. Or maybe you get a letter from your kids, especially if they're away or they're traveling or somebody you really care about and you're like, oh, a handwritten note from somebody I love? You throw all the rest of the stuff away, you tear it open, you sit down, you rearrange your day, you read that. What about when God sends you mail? Friends, marriage is a message from God for you and for me. Now, that's why marriage matters. It's saying something about him and about all of us. Now, 
just briefly, two thoughts to kind of wrap this up a little bit, and then we'll move into this idea of, of love, truth, and grace. But two thoughts. First of all, one thing this doesn't mean, and then secondly, one thing it does mean. One thing it does not mean is that every man and woman is supposed to be married. That's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. As important as marriage is, and as much as it is designed by God to function within our two gendered nature as humans, that does not mean that every man and every woman is supposed to be married. In fact, the Bible explicitly says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that it is good to be single and be a Christian. In fact, it refers to the single Christian life as a gift. I've got so much more freedom to invest time and energy in pursuing God and serving people than I would if I was married and had children and a family. So if I am single and I'm a Christian, that is not something that is looked down upon. That's something that's upheld as a gift. So interestingly, when you read the Bible, marriage is to be honored and singleness is a gift. (laughs) The Bible believes in both of them. So when we talk about our own experience as human beings, it's not that one is better than the other or single people are somehow like second class. And maybe for those of us who are married and understand the importance of marriage and we rightly hold marriage up as important, it's helpful to remember that, especially here within our own church and making our single brothers and sisters in Christ and fellow members of our church not feel like just pre-marrieds. Right? You know what I mean? (laughs) Like you matter, but you'll really matter when you're married. I mean, nobody would ever say that, but we need to be sure that we're not unintentionally conveying that. No, the single life is a gift. So as a single person, I can uphold the importance of marriage even if I'm not married and have no intention of being married anytime soon. That doesn't make me second class. The Bible honors both. But let me say one other thing too about what this does mean. What this does mean is that because God designed marriage as the total covenant commitment of a man and a woman for life until death does them part, that does mean we're not free to alter it or change it up. Because if we change the relationship, we change the message, and we're never free to rewrite God's message any more than we're free to take a Sharpie to the Bible and just cross out the parts that we don't like and rewrite them. It's like if this is God's message, we can accept it, we can reject it, and we will deal with the realities of that either way, but we're not free to change it. Imagine um, you went to Paris. I've never been there. Some of you probably have. And you went to the Louvre, the, the, the like, biggest museum in the world, right? And you're there and you're looking at the Mona Lisa. Not a facsimile, like the Mona Lisa, because that's where it is, right? And you're standing there with all of these people. Okay, ignore the pandemic, right? It's open and people can go to these places again, right? And you're standing there shoulder to shoulder with these people looking at this masterpiece and everybody's holding up their cell phones, right? And you're taking your picture of it. And... As everybody's standing there in awestruck silence, at some point, a young guy leaps over the barrier, whips out a paint palette and a brush and starts walking toward the painting. And you're like, (gasps) and in your shock, you can't even stop him. He dips his brush in the palette and he starts touching up her eyebrows, adding a little rouge to the Mona Lisa's cheeks. Okay, it's an analogy, go with it. I, I've seen pictures of the, the actual exhibit and it's behind like plexiglass and probably bulletproof and stuff like this. Could never happen, but just go with the analogy, okay? Like what would happen? People would be screaming. You'd call the security guards. They'd call the cops. There's probably enough art aficionados there that even the patrons would just gang tackle the guy, hopefully before he even got there, right? They're like, you can't touch that. And he's like, I'm an art student. I'm an artist, trust me. I know what I'm doing. I'm just improving it a little bit. 
I mean, you know, Da Vinci did okay, but he could have done this better and that better. I'm just touching it up and making it better. And what would the police say when they had him on the ground and they were cuffing him? No, you're defacing it. Right? You don't get to do that. If you're an artist and you want to go paint your own Mona Lisa and you think you can improve on it, you're free to do that. Knock yourself out. You're also free to come to the museum and admire Da Vinci's masterpiece. But one thing you're not free to do is to change the grand master artist's masterpiece. And the same thing is true of marriage. This is what God designed marriage to be. And so for those of us who follow Jesus and wonder, is this one man, one woman for life thing really all that important? I would encourage us to think about that. If we were to tweak marriage, say the number of people involved, such as in polygamous relationships, or the genders of people involved, such as in same-sex unions, or the exclusivity of the people involved, such as in what are kind of known as polyamorous or open relationships. Yeah, we'll be married, but we're free to like go experience sex and romance with other people, and we give each other permission to do that. Or if we were to tweak the permanence of marriage. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll be unif- uh, un- union, unionized with you. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'll be unified with you. We'll enter a union um, as long as it works out. And I hope it'll work out for life. But if it doesn't, you know, I'm out. And I'll just go find somebody else. As I don't view it as a lifelong commitment. If we change any of those elements of what God intended marriage to be, we change the message. We change the painting. It, it no longer says exactly what God created it to say. Now, in a broader secular culture like ours, where our society doesn't necessarily believe in God and isn't trying to honor God, of course they don't have the same goals, and so marriage is changing out there. And I get that, I get that. But for followers of Jesus, we've got to understand it's essential to read God's mail, not rewrite it for him, to behold his masterpiece, not tweak it. So, Marriage is to be held in honor by all disciples of Jesus because it is designed by God to communicate that we can be forgiven, cleansed, and changed through God's perfectly truthful, love-driven grace toward us in Christ. The remainder of our time will be spent looking at how this works within the marriage relationship. And as we've said in past weeks, there's really easy applications that we're going to be able to make to really all Christian friendships and relationships with other family members, and I trust you'll be able to do that. For the sake of time, I won't make all of those connections verbally. We're going to focus on marriages. God wants to change us through our relationships with one another, and marriage is a heightened version of this. And he uses three powerful tools to do that. These are the tools of transformation. And what I want us to see is that these are merely echoes, they're reflection of how God changes all human beings through the gospel. So for the remainder, remainder of our time, let's look at each one of these tools. The first is the tool of truth. The first is the tool of truth. What I want to do is just briefly see how the God changes us through the gospel, all people through truth, and then how that gets uh, reflected in marriage. And then we'll do the same for the other two, the tool of love and the tool of grace. First of all, the tool of truth. You realize that as we've said many times already today, God wants to radically change each one of our lives to make us less sinful and more holy. The good news of the gospel, and that's what the word gospel means, it's good news, there's good news for us, is that because of God's grace, we can be saved. 
That's tremendous news, especially if you understand you need to be saved. It's not that great a news if you don't think you need to be saved. Who cares? You see, the, the good news of the gospel starts with the hard truth that we need to be saved, and God is utterly truthful and clear on this point. Great example in the Bible is Romans chapter 3, verse 23, which says, All people have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That means even at my very best, even the best person ever who feels really good about himself or really good about herself because of how we live is not measuring up. And God pulls no punches. He tells us, none of you measure up. He's totally honest about the sick corruption of sin that is inside each one of us. He's far more honest about that than we often are about it in ourselves. He doesn't tell us that to discourage us, although that can be very discouraging. He tells us that so that he can save us. And this illustrates the power of truth to transform us. You see, you, until you see your sins for what they are, you'll never experience the healing power of Christ's atoning death on your behalf. Until I know that there's a bad diagnosis, the cure will not impact my life, not the way that God intends it to. Truth is often uncomfortable though, isn't it? It's human nature, right? We want to avoid it, especially when it's truth about ourselves because it is so uncomfortable. But it will catch up with us in the long run if we don't face it. Uh, years ago, when I was in graduate school, I worked in an office downtown in the early years of, of our marriage. And uh, I remember one guy, a coworker, standing there and talking to several of us at one point on a break, and uh, he was probably in his late 50s, maybe pushing 60 years old, and uh, he was just dreading this, um, this upcoming dental appointment because this is a guy who had hated the dentist his whole life. And so when he became an adult, he just never went. And he would get a toothache and he'd figure out how to live with it and he just wouldn't go to the dentist because he didn't like it. And, and by this point in his life, he just had a mouth full of crooked and tobacco-stained and decaying teeth. It was a mess and he knew it. And it finally got so painful and there were so many problems, he had to go to the dentist. And so he went there and the dentist said, oh man, we got some work to do. And so the dentist had lined up actually multiple different visits where this guy was going to have to have significantly invasive, painful procedures done to correct all the stuff that was going on in his mouth and he couldn't avoid it anymore. And the first one of those procedures was coming up and he was so nervous, I just remember him. And he was literally cringing with what he was about to have to go through. The diagnosis was brutal. If he had, if he had done it sooner, it actually would have been much less painful overall. And he knew that, he admitted it. Because you see, embracing the truth opens up the power for change. If I acknowledge that I need this now, then I'm willing to go get it. If I don't acknowledge the truth, I stay the same. Truth has the power to transform us. And that brings us back to our passage in Ephesians 5, verses 26 and 27. Actually, we'll back up to verse 25 to get the whole sentence. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, here's our key text this morning. So that... Here's the purpose, here's the end, here's the goal. That he might sanctify her, that Jesus might sanctify the church. That means to make the church, us, more holy. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle 
or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The Bible says that Jesus is making his followers less sinful and more reflective of his holy self. That's what he's doing. That's that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. I am learning how to become more like Christ's holy self and less like the old sinful me that lives apart from Jesus. That is the work he is doing in every one of his followers. Marriage, this passage is telling us, which reflects this relationship between us and God, is similarly a fertile field for personal change. And the reason's pretty obvious, right? We sin most against those we're closest to. I mean, that's just, that's obvious, right? You know, there's somebody you barely know, you may not sin against them very often. There's a close friend who's around you all the time, you sin against them way more regularly. There's your spouse who shares everything with you and lives with you every single day, you sin against them most of all. In a marriage, you simply can't excuse or hide your sins. Over time, your spouse knows your sins, often with far more objective and accurate clarity than we know them ourselves. I can be a little insensitive. No, he's selfish. She's right. (laughs) She's right. You just can't hide those things from a spouse. Why? Because, because they come out. They come out. The nature of the relationship just makes them come out. In this terrific book on marriage, The Meaning of Marriage, which we have out at the Harvest Book Table, we've referred to that a couple of times throughout this series. I really want to encourage you to stop by the book table. If you're watching online, check out our website and see the virtual list of books. There are some great tools and resources to help you grow in your Christian life. One of them is the book, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller. And they use this analogy of a bridge at one point. They're like, imagine like a small bridge, a a little one-lane bridge, steel girders in a country road, and maybe it's old, and and there's some hairline fractures in the steel. It's a little old, a little rusty, a little cracked, but nothing you could see. Like if you just look at the bridge, it looks fine. And then all of a sudden, here comes this huge, like heavy-laden semi-truck, and it rumbles over that bridge, and all of a sudden, the cracks and the splits get wider. And now you step back and you're like, oh my goodness, there's cracks in that bridge and I can see them now because of the weight of the truck. And Keller's point is, the truck didn't create the cracks. They were already there. The truck just revealed them because it put the pressure on them that made them visible. And his point is that marriage is the same way. Marriage doesn't cause us to sin as often as we would like to believe it does. God, it's that woman you gave me. That didn't work out very well for Adam in Genesis chapter 3, did it? It's that man you gave me. Marriage doesn't cause us to sin, but marriage will sure reveal where sin is in our lives. Maybe the stuff that I can kind of paper over and make excuses for around other people, but it comes up in my home. Marriage makes those things evident. It has the power of truth. In marriage and in other close friendships, we need to make it easy for the other person to speak the truth to us because we recognize that a diagnosis is what leads to a cure. Truth has the power to change us. Avoiding, papering over just leaves us where we're at. But that's still hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to speak the truth. It's often hard to hear the truth. Because when I hear the truth about my sin, it often feels like a criticism, right? 
It feels like criticism and condemnation. We've already said multiple times in this series that our spouse's words tend to have more weight in our lives than anybody else's words. And so when we hear the truth about our sin spoken from a spouse, it can feel just like an overwhelming criticism. And so truth by itself needs to be given in a different context. When the words of truth are coming from someone who loves us fiercely, it changes the equation some. And that leads us to the second tool of transformation, and that is love. Truth spoken in love is what gives it the power to change. This is what happens with God. In the gospel, the good news of salvation that the Bible tells for all people, The God who is so truthful with us, as we spoke about a moment ago, he's so brutally honest about our sin and our desperate need to be redeemed from it. That God who is so truthful with us is for us to an unbelievable extent. The most famous verse in the entire Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. You see the order of events there? God's love, God's action, then our salvation. The God who tells us we need to be saved has already sent his son to die. And that, that affects the way we hear his true words about how much we need to change. You see, it's not just that God loves us so much that he would die for us. He already did and most of us have never met somebody who could say that. I've already died for you. That's how much I love you. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6, the Bible says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Sometimes when people don't tell us the truth, they're not really for us. But when I know somebody is for me and they wound me, they tell me the truth, I recognize that's a faithful act of love on their part. It changes the equation. That's how God works with us. And that dynamic between us and God where he speaks the truth in in unimaginable love is what is to be reflected in marriage when spouses speak the truth in love. That's why the dynamics of marriage are so important to keep the way God intended. For example, in week two, three Sundays ago, we talked about the power of promising. The power of promising. Love is a lifelong, all-in, covenant commitment. And when you do that within a marriage, it creates a relationship, an environment of safety in which I can hear the truth more readily from my spouse because I know he or she won't leave when they really find out what's going on. They've made the commitment to stay no matter what. And if I actually believe them that they're going to stay no matter what, it can help start to take the pressure off. Now I can be more honest. I don't have to cover up. I don't have to hide anymore. One of the things Amy and I often say to one another, we kind of tease each other with it, and we've actually been doing this for so long, and we both do it, that I don't even remember who started it, although it's slightly ornery, so I'm probably the one that said it first, but I don't remember. But one of the things that we'll do with each other is like, one of us will say to the other one something we love and appreciate about them. Like I might say to her, like, I love being married to you. You are an amazing mom. You're an amazing wife. You do this and this. I feel so lucky to have you. And she'll say, good, because you're stuck with me. And I'll do that to her as well. Good, because you're stuck with me. And we smile and we laugh for two reasons. First of all, 
Like we said a few weeks ago, actually being stuck is a pretty cool thing. <laughs> we say it as if it's a negative, but there is a beauty in being stuck. There's a glory in being stuck together to cleave to your wife, a husband and wife, to be glued together for life. There's a beauty in that. But, but, but it isn't just being stuck. It's not just the fact that you can't leave. The truth is, when, when I say she's that I'm stuck with her, what I'm saying is that she's, she's for me in a way that nobody else really is. She's for me. She's committed to my good. So when she points out how I sin, I have more of a likelihood to hear it as a batting coach who's helping an athlete perfect his swing than to hear it like a judge who is convicting a guilty person and sentencing them to prison. Do you see the difference? Yeah, your swing is off and it needs to improve, but I'm with you, I'm for you when I tell you that, rather than just you're condemned, be gone. Love changes how truth is heard. It does not change the truth. It can change how truth is heard. And so we need both. We need truth in love. Truth without love is far more likely to simply harm and damage than it is to transform and to change. It doesn't really have the power to transform us, but rather only to condemn us. But on the other hand, if we only have sort of like tender, loving affirmations in a relationship where the truth is never spoken, that too lacks the power to change people. It just becomes kind of a shallow sentimentality. And it doesn't change us because we're simply constantly reaffirmed in who we are. It's easier for me to paper over my sins and ignore them because my spouse does it all the time. And so if there's no truth spoken, I just stay who I am and I don't change. Both are needed, truth and love. But that is very easy to say. In practice, those are two enormously difficult things to keep together, are they not? In any relationship, certainly in a marriage. One more thing is needed, and that is grace disposition of grace. Grace is like the glue that holds truth and love together. Grace, in simple terms, means treating somebody better than they deserve. Romans 5.8 just beautifully describes God's grace toward us when it says, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The order of events is super important. While we were still sinners, we were still rebelling against God, we weren't even asking for salvation, and he already laid down his life. He reached out to guilty sinners before we were even reaching back to him for forgiveness. You see, that's grace. That's grace. And when the experience of that grace actually touches your heart, experientially, that's when it gives us the power to turn around and give such grace to other people. If you read a couple of verses down further, God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Then in verse 11, it says, more than this, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice because Christ has loved us this way. He died for us while we were still sinners. Rejoice. We experience joy. That is what starts to fuel the Christian life. When the experience of the grace that God has given us touches our heart, that is what enables us to extend grace to other people, including to our spouses. 
being enamored with Christ's love for us is the only thing that provides the resources to extend Christ's love to those around us. In marriage, that's how it works in the gospel. In our marriages, it gets refle- the same thing gets reflected. Uh, grace means things like not keeping score. Not keeping score, which is human nature, right? We keep a list of how many times we've been sinned against, whether it's a detailed list or an indistinct one. We remember. But you see, grace says when my spouse hurts me, I don't wield truth as a weapon to get even. You made me feel bad, so I want you to feel bad for a little while in return. And if you feel as bad as I do, now we're even. Now we can talk about reconciliation. That is not how God treats us. If he did, we'd be dead. Rather, I'm so filled with Christ's love for me, rejoicing in my reconciliation, in the language of Romans 5.11, that even if he or she, my spouse, is not giving me love at the moment, I'm good because I'm enamored enough with Christ's love that I can go ahead and extend grace and love him or love her in a way they don't deserve. I don't need to wait for them to even the score. Bible, God says that when we've repented of our sins and he's forgiven us, he separates our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. He brings them to mind no more. He does not remember them. That does not mean God gets amnesia. He knows everything. He knows that we sin. What it means is he doesn't keep score. Those sins are forgiven. They're gone. It's a disposition of grace. We can do the same thing in marriages when we're filled and impacted by his grace. Grace also means believing forward. Believing forward, that's a phrase my wife Amy uses. I like it. I mean, seeing your spouse not for who he or she is right now, but for who God is making him or her into. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24, talks about the old self, the old me that Jesus saved us from, and then the new self that Jesus is creating in his image. And in that passage, it tells us that like a suit of clothes, we need to actively take off our old self and then actively put on our new self every single day. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Well, in a marriage, sometimes grace means, ooh, there's my old self. I see my spouse's old self rearing its ugly head, but I still believe that there's a new self. I'm just not seeing it right now, but I know it's there. And I'm going to respond to her. I'm going to respond to him as the grace, Jesus-like person that he is making them into, not the person that they're being right now. That's grace. That's grace. For all marriages, especially those that are settling for mediocrity, like maybe we're not on the verge of divorce, but we've just kind of settled into a, we're, we're okay, we're not super happy, we just exist and even all the way to those that are outright struggling. I think one of the best pieces of biblical advice I could give, I don't consider myself a huge fount of relationship wisdom to just dispense advice, but maybe the best piece of advice from the scripture that I could give for Romans 5.11 is to learn to become enamored with Jesus. You want to help for your marriage? Learn to become more enamored with Jesus than you are today. That's, that's a deliberate choice of words there. It has to be an experienced thing. If the love and the grace of God is merely a, a piece of theology that I believe in my head, but it's not affecting my emotions and my experience, it won't impact my relationships the way God intends it to. 
The Bible calls us to rejoice because of the grace of God. It needs to impact every facet of us. And when it does, then it can shape our relationships. 1 John 3, 1, the Bible says, See what love the Father has for us, that we would be called the children of God. Can you hear that language? Just the the gushing. This is from John, one of Jesus' disciples who walked with him and was just overwhelmed that God would choose him, that Jesus would choose him and love him. And he pours that out under the Holy Spirit's inspiration to say, I'm blown away at the love of God for me. When is the last time that happened for you, Christian? The more blown away we are at the beauty of Christ, the more filled our hearts will be and the far more grace and love and truth we can extend to one another. It breaks my heart to think of so many professing Christians who have no idea what it's like to be captivated by the love of Christ. A lot of us could benefit from working on communication skills and reading good marriage books, and I want to encourage all that. I want to encourage all that. Some of us may not need to read another marriage book. (laughs) Maybe for some of us, the best thing we can do for our marriage is get away for a while and fall more deeply in love with Jesus. If you have no idea where to begin with that, talk to some of your Christian friends and find out how they do it. Connect with us, your pastors here at the church. We would be delighted to help you fall more in love with Jesus. Marriage both reflects and requires the gospel. See, as we love like God loves, then God's love is displayed. But we can't love like God loves apart from God. And so he uses truth and love and grace to transform us, and he reflects that in our marriages as he uses truth, love, and grace to transform spouses. And I want to spend a few minutes with with Amy and Dave and Margaret. Let me ask you guys to just join me up here on the platform for a few minutes to wrap this up with a, a brief conversation about these topics of love and truth and grace and just at a really practical level how we have seen those things play out in our own homes and in our own uh, marriages. So Dave and Margaret are here with me. I so appreciate you guys coming up and joining me. You can grab that microphone right over there and I'm going to steal this one here too because I left my notes down there and you brought yours because you're usually more prepared than I am. So thank you for joining me. (laughs) You guys have been married for, why don't you grab the microphone and actually tell us how long you've been married for. It is on. (laughs) (laughs) We've been married 48 years. 48 years. That is awesome. That is awesome. Do you want to know how old I was when you got married? No, we won't go there. Um, that is, that is impressive. We got married very early. <laughs> very good. An arranged marriage. We were like three. No, okay, that didn't happen. Um, so, you know, one of the benefits of staying at anything, including a marriage for a long time, is you can actually not only see what's happening now, but you can look back over the years. So 48 years of marriage, you guys um, certainly... Uh, one of two things happened. Either there were two people who are so perfectly matched that you've lasted this long because there's been no problems, smooth sailing, and it's been easy. (laughs) Not the case. Okay, so then the other thing is you've learned some things about marriage. So as you guys reflect on 40 years of marriage, let me start by just asking, what are some of the things that just immediately pop to your mind from your own experience? Like you said before, we are still in process. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't have everything figured out, and some of you out there probably have a lot more together than we do. Mm. Uh, One of the main things that's been just really important is that we know that the Lord is helping us through this marriage, and and we won't be perfect until we're in heaven with him. So that's that's a comfort. Yeah, amen. Good word. 
And as we go through life, we have different seasons of life, and there's new challenges and opportunities, you know, just as uh, right now we're in the retirement phase, and so we're kind of thrown together a lot more than we have been together when we were, uh, I was working, and Margaret was uh, helping with the children and running the household, and and uh, so it, it, life changes and seasons change, and that really affects that. Um, <laughs> I think that one of the things that we really discovered, even when we very first got married, we thought everything was great, and we got married, and suddenly we decided that uh, there's a lot of differences. You know, we are approaching <laughs> things differently. And and the yeah. uh, very first uh, one example of that is Margaret's a morning person, <laughs> and I am not. So we just got married very first morning it's six o'clock in the morning and she jumps out of bed and says oh what a wonderful day and throws open the curtain and I'm going oh no is this going to work it's true <laughs> um, but one of the things that we have learned along the way is that we really need to continue working on our marriage um, and getting input from others who are farther along than us. Uh, we've been able to take part in really wonderful conferences on marriage and um, it's just, you know, you can't yeah. do it by yourself. And, and friends and family that support you in the process. Yeah, and I want to talk about, that's a great kind of segue because in your own marriage, you know, so we're talking here about truth and love and grace and let's talk about just from a communication and conflict resolution sort of perspective, whether it's throwing the curtains open too early or any one of a million other things, right, that come up in a relationship. Um, how have you guys learned to work love, truth, and grace into, your, into the way that you communicate with one another? Well, probably one of the biggest things for me is that I need to learn to listen better. <laughs> and... Uh, What's I, that I tend mean? to yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> well, I, I tend to be a much more task-oriented person, and Margaret's a more people person, mm -hmm. and she tends to process things by talking them through, and I don't. Mm -hmm. I tend to think about them. And uh, one of the things that really struck me early in our marriage was that one of the conferences we went to said that the guy, when they're communicating, shouldn't be always trying to fix things. And, you know, that's kind of the way I'm made is to try to come up with solutions and fix things. And how can you be having a conversation without having an idea of, well, let's fix it. <laughs> and uh, I, I saw, uh, it took a while for that to really sink in to me. And I was watching a video that had a little short one and a half minutes. And it showed this husband and wife on a couch and they're having this deep discussion and she's explaining how she's having these terrible headaches and she's just really hurting and um, and then the camera turns and you can see that she has a nail sticking out of her forehead <laughs> and her husband's sitting there going well you know if we probably got rid of that nail you'd feel a lot better and, and she goes she goes she goes it's not about the nail yeah. <laughs> I want you to hear me and how I'm, I'm, I'm really hurting. And, and you know, 
I'm just snagging all of my sweaters, <laughs> you know, and she's going on and on, and finally he just is in anguish that he can't get her to focus on the nail, and then he says, okay, I can see that you're, you're uh, really hurting, and I, I can understand that, and she's so happy that he starts to listen to her. Well, it's a little ridiculous, but boy, that really drove yeah. it home to me, is that yeah. I don't need to fix it. I need to listen to her and try to empathize with her. Yeah. Uh, and something that helps me, I heard someone, some speaker say at a, a conference probably, is that for our husbands, because they want to fix things, most of them, um, it's really good if I want to talk about something, if I tell him first, I don't need you to fix this. Mm. I, just, I just want you to listen. And that, that has been good. There's other times where I'll tell him, yeah, I do need a solution. but. Um, something that recently came to mind, uh, and I think Tim Keller in that chapter five, it worked, it really came to mind when I was reading that. I was feeling really sad and, and um, discouraged about a friendship that seemed like it was growing cold. And uh, I needed to talk about it. And so I went on and on and on about what I was experiencing and things that I interpreted maybe as not kind words. And Dave just listened and listened. He'd never had to listen so long before, I don't think. <laughs> and um, what was really uh, sweet at the very end, I hadn't asked for a solution. I was just telling him how I was feeling. Um, he said, you know, you are sometimes overly sensitive. <laughs> I thought, yes, that's true. But because it was a truth that I, I know and I needed to yeah. hear again, um, it, it was wrapped in the love that he was showing by sitting there so long listening to me. And so um, I just thought when I read what Tim Keller was saying that that was exactly yeah. what I needed. Yeah. That was a great illustration. I just need to affirm my friend, yeah. Margaret, I am overly sensitive too, and because we're friends and rely on each other, you listen to me so long to help me even better. Oh yeah, do the padding before. I just need you to listen as well as the same thing. It's so funny how that's just equally matched, but Margaret and I are friends, and this is what she does for me, as well as reminding me I am overly sensitive. And it's like, okay, but yes, just beautiful. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I love the way that you talk about verbal cues. Now, there's, if one spouse is a little more task-oriented than the other, that's one thing. But honestly, being just open with each other about where we're really at and what we need rather than expecting the other to know or read our minds, super helpful. Um, I think in our own relationship, that's occurred to me numerous times. <clears throat> I'm a very much internal processor as well. I tend to process silently while I think. Uh, Amy tends to process out loud with words. And tends so, or only does. <laughs> <laughs> me too. And uh, one of the things I think I'm learning, this actually happened just this weekend, is sometimes I need to clue her in as to what's going on in here because I'll be processing something. It may not even have anything to do with her, but she's picking up on cues. And so that was happening this weekend. Something was kind of weighing on me and emotionally I was a little down about it and it had nothing to do with her or her family or anything. Um, and uh, she finally said something to me just about like, hey, I hope you're doing okay or whatever. And it kind of clued me like, oh, I'm exuding something and my wife's picking up on it. And if I don't let her know it's not her, she may start to have all these doubts. Like, did I do something wrong? I so, will. I will. Yeah. <laughs> 
So and I had you to, did. You were able yeah, to really to talk, like, tell me. Hey, just so you know, there's a situation. I don't want to tell you about it, but just it has nothing to do with you. I'm getting over it. I'm going to try not to ruin the weekend, but it's not you. And just understanding that like, I need to give those verbal cues so she knows where I'm at has been an eye-opener for me. I can't expect her to just figure that out and be ready when I want to talk and then leave me alone when I don't. That's not realistic. Marriage is not telepathic. I right. can't be, Very and neither good. can you for each other. And yet we do that expect down. that. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, anything else that you guys want to do? We could talk about this for a lot, but, but other ways you've figured out how to implement um, love, truth, and grace in your communication. We've got time for maybe one more example. What do you want? I think uh, another big lesson for me... Um, was learning how to show Dave respect. And um, early in our marriage, you know, I <clears throat> knew the verses <clears throat> about that the husbands are supposed to love their wives as Christ loved the church and I'm to respect my husband. There's also that submission thing in there, but we won't talk about that right now. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we, we were able to go to a love and respect class and um, it's it's from a book by Emerson Egerich, and it's really good. And um, I learned that for um, my husband, and probably for most men, that respect uh, from their spouse is more important to them than hearing me say, I love you. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was really eye-opening. I, I, you know, it's hard to believe, because we women are all about showing love. And so, anyway, um, I realized that my attitudes and actions and words of respect, um, they valued way more probably than me telling him every day how much I love him. So I tried to start making some changes. Um, first, need to figure out what was disrespectful to him and what he felt was disrespecting. And I imagine it's different for different people, but for him correcting him or helpful reminders that can turn into (laughs) nagging um, or finishing sentences or critiquing when he hasn't asked for a critique (laughs) or critical attitudes. And so those things, you know, I became more aware of. I'm still working on it. I don't have it all together, that's for sure. But I started writing, as was suggested in the class, notes uh, appreciating certain aspect of the, you know, what I respect about him and the qualities or even just the fact that he worked so hard and, and had to be in a really stressful position lots of times. And over the years, just, you know, remembering to write that on birthday cards or now and then just a simple note. Yeah. And Dave said that made a big difference to him. Yeah. yeah, one of the things she would do is sometimes when I was traveling, she would put a little note in my suitcase that I didn't know about. And then when I was uh, arriving in a city far from here, I would open my suitcase and there would be the note. And it was a real encouragement to me. And, uh, and I've saved all those notes just because they just really meant a lot to me. 
What I love about what you're saying is understanding your spouse. Um, and, you know, generalities and stereotypes are there for a reason, but it's about, like, our specific spouse. What does she need to hear? What does he need to hear? And learning that and how can I communicate it is so good. Um, Dave, we just got a minute left, so maybe I'll, I'll end this question with you. You guys have been involved in marriage ministry for a long time, too, helping organize family life marriage conferences behind the scene and lots of other things. So you've probably been, as a couple, sort of exposed to more um, ideas or resources about how to build marriage than maybe the average married couple. Um, I know this will be hard, but if you could give us just one thing, you mentioned the book Love and Respect as a helpful book. If you could maybe give us one either uh, principle or maybe a book or something that you just find has been enormously helpful, not only for you guys, but for many marriages, um, what would it be? What's a good resource that you could commend to people? Um. Well, I think The uh, Lasting Promise is one of the books that by uh, Scott Stanley. The Lasting uh, Promise, okay, I'm not familiar with that It's really a, a, a very, very good book that gives you a lot of tools, but really gets in depth in uh, really looking at the different aspects of communication and dealing with conflict and, and how you can uh, work together as a team, as a couple. Um, certainly, we'd always recommend the the Weekend to Remember Family Life Conference, and we've uh, the Vertical Marriage book uh, that uh, and program that we're going to start here soon in June, a uh, small group study, I think is going to be outstanding. And so look forward to that. I think it'll be a great time together. Yeah. Good stuff just to put tools in people's hands. Guys, thank you so much for this. I want to go on and on with this, but um, we need to wrap it up. But I appreciate you guys, um, your membership here in the church, and just your commitment to one another. Um, it's been a lot of fun. Let me pray for us. I want to ask our worship team to come back up here, and then we're going to close our service praising God. Father, we are grateful to you for your goodness to us, for the beauty and the gift of marriage. Whether or not we are married, God, we pray that you would help us to see and honor uh, it because it communicates you to us. God, reveal yourself to us. And for those marriages in this room that are thriving, we pray that you would just blow more wind in the sails. For those that are struggling, God, we pray that you would give tools. As a church, I pray that you'd help us to be the kind of community that can be honest with one another and just come alongside and encourage one another along in the journey. Uh, for every single person, we pray that you would help them continue to see the purpose you have. For every married person, help them to see your purposes in their lives. God, we give ourselves to you. Pray that you would receive praise from us, a grateful people, acknowledging your worth for your glory and our good, we ask it. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.